Hello and welcome to Storytime with Shining Nathan. If you followed us here from TikTok or YouTube, we're so happy you're here. If you found us organically, welcome, you're in for a treat, as Shining Nathan, or as people like to call him, your gay auntie, will be reading you stories throughout literary history. So grab yourself something to eat, drink, and get all cuddled up while Shining Nathan takes you on a literary adventure. Be sure to follow us on TikTok, YouTube, and Instagram, and subscribe for future stories. Hello, sugar dumplings. This is your gay auntie. And as always, I'm so excited to have you here as always. Now, it seems I'm keeping on a trend because the easiest way for me to find short stories to read seems to be through uh, spooky stories. And you know what? I'm not mad about it. I know it's November, but everybody loves a good little spooky or ghost story. And we're going to keep on with that trend with this next, next story I found called Oh Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad. It is written by M.R. James. Now, M.R. James is a Victorian ghost story writer, or Edwardian, I'm not sure, but he's British anyway. And he published a lot of ghost and spooky stories in his time and had a lot of guidebooks and children's stories. And so I'm excited to be reading this story of his to y'all. And I had the pleasure of reading it while I was on my way to Colorado this past weekend or the weekend previous. And I really enjoyed reading it. And so I'm looking forward to reading it here for y'all, babies. So relax and enjoy me reading this Victorian-era ghost story by M.R. James, titled, Oh Whistle, and I'll Come to You, My Lad. I suppose you'll be getting away pretty soon now that full term is over, Professor, said a person not in the story to the Professor of Ontography. Soon after, they had sat down next to each other at a feast in the hospital hall of St. James College. The professor was young, neat, and precise in speech. Yes, he said. My friends have been making me take up golf this term, and I mean to go to the East Coast, in point of fact, to Bernstow. I dare say you know it, for a week or ten days to improve my game. I hope to get off tomorrow. Oh, Perkins, said his neighbor on the other side. If you're going to Burnstow, I wish you would look at the side of the Templar's preceptory and let me know if you think it would be any good to have a dig there in the summer. It was, as you might suppose, a person of antiquarian pursuits who said this, but since he was merely appears in the prologue, there was no need to give his entitlements. Certainly, said Parkins, the professor. If you'll describe to me whereabouts the site is, I'll do my best to give you an idea of the lie of the land when I get back, or I could write to you about it, if you would tell me where you are likely to be. Oh, don't trouble to do that, thanks. It only It's only I'm thinking of taking my family in that direction in the long, and it occurred to me that, as very few of the English preceptories have ever been properly planned, I might have an opportunity of doing something useful on off days. The professor rather sniffed at the idea that planned out a preceptory would be described as useful, his neighbor continued. The site, I doubt if there's anything shown above ground, must be down quite close to the beach now. The sea has encroached tremendously, as you know, along that bit of coast. 
I should think from the map that it must be about three quarters of a mile from the Globe Inn at the north end of town. Where are you going to stay? Well, at the Globe Inn, as a matter of fact, said Parkins. I have engaged a room there. I couldn't get in anywhere else. Most of the lodging houses are shut up in winter, it seems, and as it is, they tell me that the only room of any size I could really have is a double-bedded one, and that they have in a corner in which to store the other bed, and so on. But I must have a fairly large room, for I'm taking some books down, and mean to do a bit of work, and thought I might don't quite fancy having an empty bed, not to speak of two, in what I may call for the time being my study. I suppose I can manage to rough it for the short time I'll be there. Do you call having an extra bed in your room roughing it, Perkins? said a bluff person opposite. Look here, I shall come down and occupy it a bit if you don't, if you, it'll be company to you. The professor quivered, but managed to laugh in a courteous manner. By all means, Rogers, there's nothing I should like better. But I'm afraid you should find it rather dull. You don't play golf, do you? Oh, no, thank heaven, said rude Mr. Rogers. Well, you see, when I'm not writing, I shall most likely be out on the links, and that, as you say, would be rather dull for you, I'm afraid. Oh, I don't know. There's certain to be somebody I know to be in the place. But, of course, if you don't want me, speak the word. Parkins, I shan't be offended. Truth, as you always tell us, is never offensive. Parkins was indeed scrupulously polite and strictly truthful. It is to be feared that Mr. Rogers sometimes practiced upon his knowledge of these characteristics. In Parkins' breast there was a conflict now raging, which for a moment or two did not allow him to answer. The interval being over, he said, Well, if you want the exact truth, Rogers, I was considering whether the room I speak of would really be large enough to accommodate us both comfortably, and also whether, mind I should have said this if I, you hadn't pressed me, you would not constitute something in the nature of a hindrance to my work. Rogers laughed loudly. Well done, Perkins, Parkins, <laughs> he said. It's all right. I promise not to interrupt your work. Don't you disturb yourself about that. No, I won't come if you don't want me, but I thought I should do so nicely to keep the ghosts off. Here he might have been seen to wink and to nudge his next neighbor. Parkins might also have been seen to become pink. I beg pardon, Parkins, Rogers continued. I oughtn't to have said that. I forgot you don't like levity on those topics. <laughs> well, Parkins said, as you have mentioned the matter, I freely own that I do not like careless talk about what you call ghosts. As a man in my position, he went on, raising his voice a little, Cannot, I find, be too careful about appearing to sanction the current belief on such subjects. As you know, Rogers, or as you ought to know, for I think I have never concealed my views. No, you certainly have not, old man, put in Rogers sotto voce. 
I hold that any semblance, any appearance of concession to the view that such things might exist, is equivalent to a renunciation of all that I hold most sacred. But I'm afraid I have not succeeded in securing your attention. Oh, your undivided attention was what Mr. Blimer actually once said. Rogers interrupted with every appearance of an earnest desire for accuracy. But... I beg your pardon, Parkins. I'm stopping you. No, not at all, said Parkins. I don't remember Blimer. Perhaps he was before my time. But I needn't go on. I'm sure you know what I mean. Yes, yes, said Rogers rather hastily. Just so. We'll go into it fully at Burnstow or somewhere. In repeating the above dialogue, I have tried to give the impression which it made on me that Parkins was something of an old woman, rather hen-like, perhaps, in his little ways, totally destitute, alas, of the sense of humor, but at the same time dauntless and sincere in his conviction, and a man deserving of the greatest respect. Whether or not the reader has gathered so much, that was the character which Parkins had. On the following day, Parkins did, as he had hoped, succeed in getting away from his college, and in arriving at Burnstow was made welcome at the Globe Inn, was safely installed in the large, double-bedded room of which we have heard, and was able, before retiring, to rest to arrange his materials for work in apple pot order on a commodious table which occupied the outer end of the room, and was surrounded on three sides by windows looking out seaward, that is to say, the central window looked straight out to the sea, and those on the left and right commanded prospects along the shore to the north and south, respectfully. On the south, you saw the village of Burnstow. On the north, no houses were to be seen, but only the beach and the low cliff back in it. Immediately in front was a strip, not considerable, of rough grass dotted with old anchors, capstans, and so forth, then a broad path, and then the beach. Whatever may have been the original distance between the globe inn and the sea, not more than sixty yards now separated them. The rest of the population of the inn was, of course, a golfing one, and included few elements that call for a special description. The most conspicuous figure was perhaps that of an ancient militaire, secretary of a London club, and possessed of a voice of incredible strength, and views of a pronouncedly Protestant type. These were apt to find utterance after his attendance upon the ministrations of the vicar, an estimable man with inclinations towards a picturesque ritual which he gallantly kept down as far as he could out of the deference of an East Anglian tradition. Professor Parkins, one of those principal characteristics was Pluck, spent the greater part of the day following his arrival at Burnstow in what he had called improving his game, in the company with this Colonel Wilson. And during the afternoon, whether the process of improvement were to blame or not, I'm not sure, the colonel's demeanor assumed a color and so lured that even Parkins jibbed at the thought of walking home with him from the legs. He determined, after a short and furtive look at the bristling mustache and those incarnate features, that it would be wiser to allow the influence of tea and tobacco to do what they could with the colonel before the dinner hour should render a meeting inevitable. 
I might walk home tonight along the beach, he reflected. Yes, and take a look, there will be light enough for that, at the ruins of which Disney was talking. I don't exactly know where they are, by the way, but I expect I can hardly help stumbling on them. This he accomplished, I may say, in the most literal sense, for in picking his way from the links to the shingle beach his foot caught, partly in a coarse root and partly in a diggish stone, and over he went. When he got up and surveyed his surroundings, he found himself in a patch of somewhat broken ground covered with a small depression and mounds. These latter, when he came to examine them, proved to be simple masses of flint embedded in mortar and grown over with turf. He must, he quite rightly concluded, be on the side of the preceptory he had promised to look at. It seemed not unlikely to roar the spade of the explorer. Enough of the foundations was probably left at no great depth to throw a good deal of light on the general plan. He remembered vaguely that the Templars to whom this site had belonged were in the habit of building round churches, and he thought a particular series of the humps or mounds near him did appear to be arranged in something of a circular form. Few people can resist the temptation to try a little amateur research in a department quite outside their own, if only for the satisfaction of showing how successful they would have been had they only taken it up seriously. Our professor, however, if he felt something of this mean desire, was also truly anxious to oblige Mr. Disney. So he paced with care the circular area he had noticed and wrote down its rough dimensions in a pocketbook. Then he proceeded to examine an oblong eminence, which lay east of the center of the circle and seemed to his thinking likely to be the base of a platform or altar. Hmm. At one end of it in the northern, a patch of the turf was gone, removed by some boy or other creature fair of nature. It might, he thought, be as well to probe the soil here for evidences of masonry and he took out his knife and began scraping away the earth. And now followed another little discovery. A portion of soil fell inward as he scraped and disclosed a small cavity. He lighted one match after another to help him to see of what nature the hole was, but the wind was true strong for them all. By tapping and scraping the sides with a knife, however, he was able to make out that it would had must be an artificial hole in masonry. It was rectangular, and the sides top and bottom, if not actually plastered, was smooth and regular. Of course, it was empty. Uh, no! As he withdrew the knife, he heard a metallic clink. And when he introduced his hand, it met with a cylindrical object lying on the floor of the hole. Naturally enough, he picked it up, and when he brought it in the light, now fast fading, he could see that it, too, was of man's making. A metal tube about four inches long, and evidently of some considerable age. By the time Parkins had made sure that there was nothing else in the odd receptacle, it was too late and too dark for him to think of undertaking any further search. 
What he had done had proved so inexplicably interesting that he determined to sacrifice a little more of the daylight on the morrow to archaeology. The object which he now had safe in his pocket was bound to be of some slight value at least, he felt sure. Bleak and solemn was the view in which he took his last look before starting homeward. A faint yet a light in the west showed the links on which a few figures moved towards the clubhouse was still visible. The squat Martella Tower, the lights of Allsby Village, the pale ribbon of sands intersected at intervals by black wooden groundings, the dim and murmuring sea. The wind was bitter from the north but was at his back when he set out for the globe. He quickly rattled and clashed through the shingle and gained the sand upon which, but for the groundings, which had to be got over every few yards, the going was both good and quiet. One last look behind, to measure the distance he had made since leaving the ruined Templar's church, showed him a prospect of company on his walk, in the shape of a rather indistinct personage, whom seemed to be making great efforts to catch up with him, but made little, if any, progress. I mean that there was an appearance of running about his movements, but that the distance between him and Parkins did not seem materially to lessen. So at last, Parkins thought and decided that he almost certainly did not know him, and that it would be absurd to wait until he came up. For all that company, he began to think, would really be very welcome at this lonely shore, if only you could choose your companion. In his unenlightened days, he had read of meetings in such places which even now would hardly bear thinking of. He went on thinking of them, however, until he reached home, and particularly of one which catches most people's fancy at some time of their childhood. Now I saw in my dream that Christian had gone but a very little way when he saw a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him. What should I do now, he thought. If I looked back and caught sight of a black figure sharply defined against the yellow sky and saw that it had horns and wings, hmm, I wonder whether I should stand or run for it. Luckily, the gentleman behind is not of that kind, and he seems to be about as so far off now as when I first saw him. Well, at this rate, he won't get his dinner as soon as I shall. And dear me, it's within a quarter of an hour of that time now. I must run. Parkins had, in fact, very little time for dressing. When he met the colonel at dinner... Peace, or as much of her as that gentleman could manage, reigned over more in the military bosom. Nor was she put to flight in the hours of bridge that followed dinner, for Parkins was a more than respectable player. When, therefore, he retired towards twelve o'clock, he felt that he had spent his evening in quite a satisfactory way, and that even for so long as a fortnight or three weeks, life at the globe would be supportable under similar conditions. Especially, thought he, if I go on improving my game. As he went along the passages, he met the boots of the globe, who stopped and said, Beg your pardon, sir, but as I was brushing your coat, I just now, there was something fell out of the pocket. I put it on your chest of drawers, sir, in your room, sir. 
A piece of pipe, or something, I think, sir. Well, thank you, sir. You'll find it on your chest of drawers, sir. Yes, sir. Good night, sir. The speech served to remind Parkinson of his little discovery of that afternoon. It was with some considerable curiosity that he turned it over by the light of candles. It was of bronze, he now saw, and was shaped very much after the manner of the modern dog whistle. In fact, it was, yes, certainly it was, actually no more, no less than a whistle. He put it to his lips, but it was quite full of a fine caked up sand or earth, which would not yield to knocking, but must be loosened with a knife. Tidy as ever in his habits, Parkins cleared out the earth onto a piece of paper and looked the ladder to the window to empty it out. The night was clear and bright, as he saw when he had opened this casement, and he stopped for an instant to look out at the sea, and note a belated wanderer stationed on the shore, in front of the inn. Then he shut the window, a little surprised at the late hours people kept in Burnstow, and took his whistle to the light again. Why, surely there were markings on it, and not merely markings, but letters a very little rubbed rendering the deeply cut inscription quite legible but the professor had to confess after some earnest thought that the meaning of it was obscure to him as the writing on the wall of belazar there were both legends on the front and on the back of the whistle the one read thus fulibus flebes the other quiest is I ought to be able to make it out, he thought. But I suppose I am a little rusty in my Latin. When I came to think of it, I don't believe I even know the word of full whistle. The long one does seem simple enough. It ought to mean, who is this who is coming? Well, the best way to find out is evidently to whistle for him. <laughs> He blew tentatively and suddenly and stopped, startled, and yet pleased at the note he had elicited. It had a quality of infinite distance in it, and soft as it was, he somehow felt it must be audible for miles. It was a sound, too, that seemed to have the power, which many sense possess, of forming pictures in the brain. He saw quite clearly for a moment a vision of a wide, dark expanse at night, with a fresh wind blowing, and in the midst a lonely figure. How employed, he could not tell. Perhaps he would have seen more had not the picture been broken by the sudden surge of wind of gust against the casement, so sudden that it made him look up, just in time to see the white glint of a seabird's wings somewhere outside the dark panes. The sound of the whistle had so fascinated that he could not help trying it once more, this time more boldly. The note was little, if at all, louder than before, and repetition broke the illusion. No picture followed, as he had half hoped it might. But what is this, goodness, what force the wind can get up to in minutes? What a tremendous gust! There! I knew the window fair fastened was not used. Ah, I thought so, both candles out. 
It is enough to tear the room to pieces. The first thing was to shut the window. While at might, you might count, 20, Parkins was struggling with a small casement and felt almost as if it were pushing back a sturdy burglar, so strong was the pressure. It slackened all at once, and the window banged to and latched itself. Now, to relight the candles and see what damage, if any, had been done. No. Nothing seemed to be amiss. No glass even was broken in the casement, but the noise had evidently roused at least one member of the household. The colonel was to be heard stumbling in his stocking feet on the floor above and growling. Quickly as it had risen, the wind did not fall at once. On it went, moaning and rushing past the house, at times rising to a cry so desolate that as Perkis disinterestedly said, it might have made fanciful people quite uncomfortable. Even the unimaginative, he thought after a quarter of an hour, might be happier without it. Whether it was the wind, or the excitement of golf, or the researchers in the perceptory that kept Parkins awake, he was not sure. Awake he remained, in any case, long enough to fancy, as I'm afraid I often do myself under such conditions, that he was the victim of all manner of fatal disorders. He would lie counting the beats of his heart, convinced that it was going to stop work every moment, and would entertain grave suspicions of his lungs, brain, liver, etc. Suspicions which he was sure would be dispelled by the return of daylight, but which until then refused to be put aside. He found a little vicarious comfort in the idea that someone else was in the same boat, a near neighbor, in the darkness it was not easy to tell the direction, was tossing and rustling in his bed, too. The next stage was that Perkins shut his eyes and determined to give sleep every chance. Here again, overexcitement asserted itself in another form, that of making pictures. Expecto crede. Pictures do come to the closed eyes of one trying to sleep. Often his pictures are so little to his taste that he must open his eyes and disperse the images. Parkins's experience on this occasion was a very distressing one. He found the picture which presented itself to him was continuous. When he opened his eyes, of course, it went. But when we shut them once more, it framed itself afresh acting itself out again, neither quicker nor slower than before. What he saw was this. A long stretch of shore, shingle-edged by sand, and intersected at short intervals with black groins, running down to the water. A scene, in fact, so like that of the afternoon's walk, that in the absence of any landmark, it could not be distinguished therefrom. The light was obscure, conveying an impression of gathering storm, late winter evening and slight cold rain. On this bleak stage, at first no actor was visible. Then, in the distance, a bobbin black object appeared, a moment more, and it was a man running, jumpering, clambering over the coins, every few seconds looking eagerly back. 
The nearer he came, the more obvious it was that he was not only anxious, but even terribly frightened. Though his face was not to be distinguished, he was, moreover, almost at the end of his strength. On he came. Each successive obstacle seemed to cause him more difficulty than the last. Will he get over the next one? thought Perkins. It seems a little higher than the others. Yes, half climbing, half throwing himself, he did get over and fell on all in a heap on the other side, the side nearest to the spectator. There, as if really unable to get up again, he remained crouching under the groin, looking up in an attitude of painful anxiety. So far, no cause whatsoever for the fear of the runner had been shown. But now they began to be seen, far up the shore, a light flicker of something light-colored, moving to and fro with great swiftness and irregularity, rapidly growing larger. It, too, declared itself as a figure in pale, fluttering draperies, ill-defined. There was something about its motion which made Parkins very unwilling to see it at close quarters. It would stop, raise arms, bow itself toward the sand, then run, stooping across the beach to the water edge and back again, and then rising upright again. Once more, continue its course forward at speed that was startling and terrifying. The moment came when the pursuer was hovering about from left to right, only a few yards beyond the groin which the runner lay in hiding. After two or three ineffectual castings hither and thither, it came to a stop, stood upright with arms raised high, and then darted straight forward towards the groin. It was at this point that Parkins always failed in his resolution to keep his eyes shut. With many misgivings as to implicitly a failure of eyesight, overworked brain, excessive smoking, and so on, he finally resigned himself to light his candle, get out a book, and pass the night waking, rather than be tormented by this persistent panorama, which he saw clearly enough could only be a morbid reflection of his walk and his thoughts on that very day. The scraping of a match on a box and the glare of light must have startled some creatures of the night, rats or what not, which he heard scurry across the floor from the side of his bed with much rustling. Dear, dear, the match is out, fool that it is. But the second one burnt better and a candle and a book were duly procured, over which Parkins poured till sleep of a wholesome kind came upon him, and that in no long space... For about the first time in his orderly and prudent life, he forgot to blow out the candle. And when he was called next morning at eight, there was still a flickering in the socket and a sad mess of gutted grease on the top of the little table. Perhaps I am, he said. But here, give him my cleat, boy. Excuse me one moment, Colonel. A short interval. Now, as to the whistle of the wind, let me give you my theory about it. The laws which govern winds are really not all perfectly known. To fisher folk and such, of course, not known at all. A man or woman of eccentric habits, perhaps, or a stranger, is seen repeatedly on the beach at some unusual hour, and is heard whistling. Soon afterwards, a violent wind rises, and a man who could read the sky perfectly, who possesses a barometer, could have foretold that it would. The simple people of Fishing Village have no barometers, and only a few rules for prophesying weather. 
What more natural than the eccentric personage I postulate should be regarded as having raised the wind, or that he or she should clutch eagerly at the reputation of being able to do so? Now, take last night's wind. As it happens, I myself was whistling. I blew a whistle twice, and the wind seemed to come absolutely in answer to my call. If anyone had seen me... The audience had been in little restive under his harangue, and Parkins had, I fear, fallen somewhat into the tone of a lecturer. But at the last sentence, the colonel stopped. Whistling, were you? He had said. And what sort of whistle did you use? Play, play this stroke first. Interval. About that whistle you are asking, Colonel, it's rather a curious one. I have it in my... No, I see I've left it in my room. As a matter of fact, I found it yesterday. And then Perkins narrated the manner of his discovery of the whistle, upon hearing which the Colonel grunted and opined that in Parkins' place he should himself be careful about using a thing that had belonged to a set of papists, of whom, speaking generally, it might be affirmed that you never knew what they might not have been up to. From this topic he diverged to the enormities of the vicar, who had given notice on the previous Sunday that Friday would be the Feast of St. Thomas the Apostle, and that there would be a service at eleven o'clock in the church. This and other similar proceedings constituted in the colonel's view a strong presumption that the vicar was a concealed papist, if not a Jesuit, and Parkins, who could not very readily follow the colonel in this region, did not disagree with him. In fact, they got on so well together in the morning that there was no talk on either side of their separating after lunch. Both continued to play well but during the afternoon, or at least well enough to make them forget everything else until the light began to fail them. Not until then did Parkins remember that he had meant to do some more investigating at the preceptory. But it was no great importance, he reflected. One day was as good as another. He might as well go home with the colonel. As they turned the corner of the house, the colonel almost knocked down a boy who rushed into him at the very top of his speed, and then, instead of running away, remained hanging on to him and panting. The first words of the warrior were naturally those of reproof and objection, but he quickly discerned that the boy was almost speechless with fright. Inquiries were useless at first. When the boy got his breath, he began to howl and still clung to the colonel's leg. He was at last detached, but continued. To how? What in the world is the matter with you? What have you been up to? What have you seen? Said the two men. Oh, I seen it with my own out in the yonder. Wailed the boy. I don't like it. What? What window? Said the irritated colonel. Come, pull yourself together, my boy. The front window was at the hotel, said the boy. At this point, Parkins was in favor of sending the boy home, but the colonel refused. He wanted to get to the bottom of it, he said. It was most dangerous to give a boy such a fright as this one had, and if it turned out that people had been playing jokes, they should suffer for it in some way. And by a series of questions, he made out this story. 
The boy had been playing out on the grass in front of the globe with some others. Then he had gone home to their teas, and he has just going out when he happened to look up at the front window and had seen it waving at him. It seemed to be a figure of some sort, and white as far as he knew. Couldn't see its face, but it waved at him, and it weren't a right thing, not to say not a right person. Was there light in the room? No, he did not think it looked as if there was light. Which was the window? Was it the top one or the second one? The second one it was. The big window with the got the two big little ones on the side. Well, they were well, my boy, said the colonel after a few more questions. You run along now. I expect it was some person trying to give you a start. Another time, like a brave English boy, just throw a stone. Well, no, not that exactly, but you go and speak with the waiter to Mr. Simpson, the landlord, and yes, and say that I advised you to do so. Can you make anything of the inscription? asked Parkins as he took it back. No, not in this light. What do you mean to do with it? Oh, well, when I go back to Cambridge, I shall submit it to some of the archaeologists there and see what they think of it. And very likely, if they consider it worth having, I may present it to one of the museums. said the colonel. Well, you might be right. All I know is that if it were mine, I should chuck it straight into the sea. It's no use talking. I'm well aware, but I expect that you, it's a cause of live and learn. I hope so. I'm sure. I wish you good night. He turned away, leaving Parkins in the act of to speak at the bottom of the stair, and soon each was in his own bedroom. By some unfortunate accident, there was neither blinds nor curtains to the windows of the professor's room. The previous night he had thought little of this, but tonight there seemed to be every prospect of a bright moon rising to shine directly on his bed, and probably wake him later on. When he noticed this was a good deal annoyed, but when he was ingenuity, which he had came to only envy, he succeeded in rigging up, with the little help of a railway rug, some safety pins, and a stick and umbrella, a screen which, if it only held together, would completely keep the moonlight off his bed. And shortly thereafterwards, he was comfortably in that bed. When he had read somewhat solid work long enough to produce a decided wish to sleep, he cast a drowsy glance round the room, blew out the candle, and fell back upon the pillow. He must have slept soundly for an hour or more when a sudden clatter shook him up in the most unwelcome manner. In a moment, he realized what had happened. His carefully constructed screen had given way, and a very bright, frosty moon was shining directly on his face. This was highly annoying. Could he possibly get up and reconstruct the screen, or could he manage to sleep it off? Did not. For some moments, he lay and pondered over all the possibilities when he turned over sharply, and with his eyes open, lay breathlessly listening. There had been a movement. He was sure, in the completely open bed on the opposite side of the room. Tomorrow he would have it moved, for there must be rats or something playing about in it. It was quiet now. No, 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 no. The commotion began again. There was a rustling and shaking. 
Surely more than a rat could cause. I can figure to myself something of the professor's bewilderment and horror, for I have in my dream thirty years back seen that same thing happen. But the reader will hardly perhaps imagine how dreadful it was to him to see a figure suddenly sit up in what he had known to be an empty bed. He was out of his own bed in one bound and made a dash toward the window where lay his only weapon, the stick which he had propped his screen. This was, it turned out, to be the worst thing he could have done because the personage in the empty bed, with a sudden smooth motion, slipped from the sheets and slipped from the bed and took up a position with outspread arms between the two beds and the front of the door. Parkins watched in a horrid perplexity. Somehow, the idea of getting past it, escaping through the door, was intolerable to him. He could not have been born. He did not know why to touch it, and as for it to touch him. He would sooner dash himself through the window than have that happen. It stood for the moment in a band of dark shadow, and he had not seen what its face was like. Now, it began to move. It in a stooped posture. And all at once, the spectator realized with some horror and some relief that it must be blind. For it seemed to feel about with the muffled arms in a groping and random fashion, turning halfway around him. It became suddenly and cautious of the bed, and conscious as the one he just left, and darted towards it, and bent and fed over the pillows in every way, which made Parkins shudder, as he had never in his life thought impossible. In a very few moments, it seemed to know that the bed was empty, and then moving forward in the area of light, facing the window, it showed for the first time what manner of thing it was. Parkins, who very much dislikes being questioned about it, did once describe something of it in my hearing. I gathered that what he clearly remembered about it was a horrible, immensely horrible, intensely exhaustibly horrible face of crumpled linen. What expression he read upon he could not or would not tell, but that the fear of it went nigh to man in him is certain. But he was not at leisure to watch it for long. With formidable quickness it moved in the middle of the room, and it groped and waved. One corner of its draperies felt swept across Parkin's face. He could not, though he knew only perilous as sound words. He could not keep back a cry of disgust, and this gave the searcher an instant clue. It leapt towards him upon the instant, and the next moment he was halfway through the window backwards, uttering cry upon cry at the utmost pitch of his voice, and the linen face was thrust close to his own. At this, almost at the last possible second, deliverance came, as you will have guessed. The colonel burst through the open door and was just in time to see the dreadful group at the window. When he reached the figures, only one was left. Parkin sank forward into the room in a faint, and before he himself hit the floor, lay tumbled in a help of bedclothes. Colonel Wilson asked no questions, but busied himself in keeping everyone else out of the room and in getting Parkins back into his bed and himself, wrapped in a rug, occupied the other bed for the rest of the night. Early on the next day, Rogers arrived, 
more welcome than he could have been a day before, and the three of them held a very long consultation in the professor's room. At the end of it, the colonel left the hotel door, carrying a small object between his finger and thumb, which he cast as far into the sea as his very brawny arm could send it. Later on, the smoke of a burn and ascended from the back premises of the globe. Exactly what explanation was patched up for the staff and visitors at the hotel, I must confess I do not recall. The professor was somehow cleared of the ready suspicion of delirium tremens and the hotel of reputation of a troubled house. There's not much question as to what would have happened to Parkins if the colonel had not intervened when he did. He would either have fallen out of the window or else lost his wits. But it is not so evident what more the creature that came in to answer the whistle could have done than frighten. There seemed to be absolutely nothing material about it save the bedclothes of which it had made itself a body. The colonel, who remembered not a very dissimilar occurrence in India, was of the opinion that if Perkins had closed with it really would have done very little, that its own power was that of frightening. The whole thing, he said, served to confirm his opinion of the Catholic Church. There is really nothing more to tell. But as you may imagine, the professor's views on certain points are less clear-cut than they used to be. His nerves, too, have suffered. He cannot even see a surplus hanging on a door quite unmoved, and the spectacle of a scarecrow in a field late on a winter afternoon has cost him more than one sleepless night. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Storytime with Shining Nathan. If you did, remember to subscribe and feel free to follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. If you would like to support this channel and your gay auntie, go to patreon.com forward slash Shining Nathan. If you have any suggestions on pieces we can read, feel free to email us at yourgayauntie at gmail.com. Remember, you are loved, you are fully valid, and we're so happy you're here. You take care of yourself.